linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, here we are back together once again, and it's been another week. I actually believed myself when I said I was going to get a second podcast out last week, but as you can see, I uh, didn't know what I was talking about once again. I wish I could tell you that uh, I had a good reason for not podcasting sooner, but the truth is that time uh, just slipped away from me. It's a good thing I don't have a real job, because uh, I'd probably be worrying about getting fired for being so slack. But on the other hand, uh, I'm finding life quite enjoyable at this non-corporate pace, and I highly recommend it. That is, uh, if you can figure out a way to buy food, shelter, and clothing without going to work every day. But enough idle chatter. Let's get on with today's program. Now, one of the reasons I'm uh, able to keep doing these podcasts is that I've been getting help to pay for the bandwidth and other podcasting expenses from some of our fellow saloners. And this week, I want to thank Andrew D., Philip P., and by the way, this is a different Philip P. from last week, so uh, nice little synchronicity there, you guys. And also, we received a donation from another frequent donor, A Dime Short. So thank you to Andrew, Philip, and A Dime Short. Your support means a lot to all of us here in the Psychedelic Salon. And hey, a dime short, uh, thanks also for that most excellent review on iTunes. Uh, (laughs) I loved it. And for today's program, I also want to thank Dennis Berry, who is the trustee of the Futique Trust, which is the trust that holds the Timothy Leary archives. Thanks to Dennis and to Bruce Damer, we've been given access to the recordings of some of Dr. Leary's speeches. And thanks uh, for that also goes out to Rene Dalder and his students who digitize this material for us. And soon, I'm told, much of this material will also be available at the Internet Archive, so you won't have to wait for me to podcast it all. However, I am going to do my part by playing another talk from this amazing archive right now. The talk we're about to hear was labeled Creation of the Future, but I think that today a more provocative title uh, might be something like A Timothy Leary Take on Intelligent Design. Now, I hope that doesn't put you off, because uh, in a way that you'll hear for yourself in just a minute, I think that this talk uh, definitely has elements of that debate in it, but uh, with a Tim Leary twist, of course. Now, when this talk begins, we hear a woman introducing Timothy Leary, and I'm almost positive that it is uh, Grace Slick doing the honors. The date of this talk is sometime around January of 1979, based on uh, some of the comments that Dr. Leary makes, and uh, you'll hear in just a minute. Also, uh, in this talk, we hear Timothy refer to his Cooper Union speech, which you can hear in podcast number 127. By the way, uh, I've now heard that in addition to Tom Robbins being in the audience that night, Leary's archivist, Michael Horowitz, was also in attendance. And you can uh, hear some of Michael's stories about those days in a recent podcast of Psychonautica by Max Freakout, which you can find at dopefiend.co.uk. And I think the Horowitz talk is in his uh, podcast number 31. As you'll hear in a minute, uh, Dr. Leary either had a continuous nervous laugh or he was enjoying himself immensely. Uh, My guess is that he was just having a great time, uh, as he always seems to do. 
And if I remember correctly, it was uh, Marshall McLuhan who advised him to always be smiling whenever the press took a picture of him. And if you do a Google image search on Tim Leary, you'll see that the majority of pictures of him are of him smiling. And if you think about it for a minute, uh, when some of those photos were taken, he had to really be hurting inside, uh, particularly when they were taking him to prison. Here he was, uh, you know, about to be locked in a cage, and he was still smiling. I think that may be uh, his greatest legacy, you know, the gift of lightness of being. I know that I uh, seem to take this life way too seriously from time to time, and so I think it's uh, great to hear some truly innovative ideas presented in a very unassuming way. And uh, to top things off, he made this presentation to what I would consider a very raucous crowd. All in all, uh, I get the impression that Dr. Timothy Leary was having a great time on that January night in 1979. So let's join the crowd now and uh, see how these remarks of almost 30 years ago hold up today. I was going to make some semi-humorous comments about endless beginnings and metamorphosis and the cyclic intellect of the 60s in San Francisco. But this uh, feels more like a sort of a kitchen laboratory where people are hungry, waiting for the real food. <laughs> the appetizers were good, you know, but I can feel that give me the food stuff. <laughs> and I'm just as anxious to hear him as you are. So here he comes. The Commodore, Timothy Leary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be in San Francisco, the neurological Dodge City by the Bay. <laughs> um, it's a great uh, privilege and honor to have Grace uh, here tonight and Paul and the members of the Starship. Thank you for being here. Um, could, could we have the lights so there's more lights uh, on everybody? So that... Uh, I'm going to um, demonstrate with scientific evidence, uh, anthropological data, ethological reports, to anyone's satisfaction that um, for the last four or five thousand years, freedom and intelligence uh, and individualism has been moving in an un unbroken chain from east to west. So that here on the banks of the Pacific Ocean, we obviously have assembled um, the most advanced nervous systems on the planet. <laughs> um, it's a 21st century audience, so I'm going to try to give you a 21st century transmission. 
I'm also going to demonstrate with scientific um, evidence, uh, clinical and anecdotal reports, that um, the <laughs> suffering is caused by being in the wrong place at the right time, <laughs> or the right place at the wrong time, <laughs> and the obvious uh, uh, solution to the problem of uh, suffering is to put your body, put your nervous system, and put your sperm egg supply in the right place at the right time. <laughs> and I think tonight is such a time. You know, um, the geologists have just let the uh, awful truth uh, out of the closet. Uh, the tectonic plates that uh, are active in uh, this hemisphere are moving in such a way that uh, California, as you probably know, is steadily moving upward and westward. At the same time, the rest of the United States is moving southward and downward. <laughs> so, as we float upward and westward, <laughs> the minor little perturbations as we separate, of course, are known as these uh, uh, minor Richter faults, but I sure want to urge anyone who wants to uh, continue to grow and get smarter when the big quake comes, be on the California side. I go around the country lecturing, and um, there's simply no question. Uh, I'm an intelligence agent. I'm out there picking up reports and reporting back to you what's going on. Uh, the real action, in the sense of any sort of uh, individual anarchy or energy and uh, dynamism is in the is in the Sun Belt. I, I literally do go up to a place like Buffalo in the middle of winter and I say, um, Buffalo's an intelligence test. You failed. <laughs> and you're going to have to repeat Buffalo 1A <laughs> over and over again until, <laughs> until you realize that we're not supposed to be bundled up. <laughs> um, now, uh, this uh, occasion reminds... Uh, I really want... Uh, really want to send out some electricity tonight and to uh, get all of our nervous systems uh, vibrating and uh, shocked and uh, moving because I feel, as I'm sure you feel, that uh, it's time to start sending out signals of intelligence and uh, precise hope again. And certainly this is a place we can uh, get such a, um, an activity started. Tonight reminds me in some ways of, um, of a lecture that I gave uh, in New York City in 1964, just some 15 years ago, we had left Harvard, Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzner and others, and uh, I was invited to give uh, a lecture at Cooper Union. It's a very uh, East Coast uh, shrine, like, you know, uh, the Acropolis or uh, Canterbury Cathedral. And uh, I was um, sitting in the dressing room backstage, and the uh, man that run, ran this adult education for Cooper Union, whatever it was, came in the room. I remember this is 1964. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was an unknown left-handed guitar player in London. Uh, the Beatles were, uh, oh, they hadn't done Sgt. Pepper. Uh, uh, Bob Dylan was, uh, hadn't gone electric. This was in the prime ordinal period. <laughs> I, was in the, I was in the dressing room, and um, this uh, very important man came in. He was the dean of the uh, adult education, and he looked at me the way I was dressed. I had on a blue work shirt, uh, blue jeans, uh, uh, tennis shoes and red socks because we were definitely sending a signal out to the um, adult authorities that we were not going to play that game anymore. 
So he looked at me and said, you can't give a lecture at Cooper Union without a coat and a tie. Abraham Lincoln and uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and John Foster Dulles <laughs> have spoken in this hallowed hall. So I said, well, you're going to have to tell everyone to go home because so forth. So I came out uh, to this um, East Coast uh, audience and I said, um, everything that uh, I have to say tonight can be summed up in one sentence. You have to go out of your mind to use your head. <laughs> and there was a pause, yeah. <laughs> then there was a, an applause. Now, this is 1964, so that was encouraging. Um, and I, I said, okay, that took one minute. Uh, we got 59 minutes more, so I can just tell you stories uh, to illustrate um, uh, on the basis of scientific evidence why this is true. And at that time, the hot scientific issue had to do with uh, imprinting. Oh, you know, the uh, ethologists like Conrad Lorenz and Timber, Nico Timberger, who got the Nobel Prize later, had been studying animal behavior, fowls and uh, mammals and primates. And uh, they, they, um, they found that there was a form of learning which took place totally in violation of all the laws of, uh, of Skinnerian psychology, that animals seem to have a one-shot learning, which they created a new reality. This is called the imprinting period, the critical period. And I was telling them stories about um, you can take, uh, say, uh, any animal, any fowl during the early periods is a, 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 a critical period when uh, whatever it sees there, it imprints as being the reality. And they were training... Um, um, animals to imprint uh, ping-pong balls. They had a goose that would imprint uh, a big orange basketball. Well, for the rest of the life, that goose went around uh, trying to suckle the uh, basketball. When it got older, it tried to make the basketball. Couldn't score, but kept on trying. <laughs> In other words, the entire game was being played with the object that was imprinted at the time. There was the great story about the uh, hunters that uh, shot a giraffe when they drove the jeep over. They found out that the... Um, uh, giraffe had a little baby as the hunter's jeep moved uh, close. Obviously what happened was that the baby giraffe imprinted the uh, jeep because for the rest of the giraffe lives it paid no attention to lady giraffes but always trying to uh, <laughs> mingle with, sell life insurance to, or fuck uh, jeeps. <laughs> Which led to the uh, uneasy... Now, Scientists never apply these findings to the human situation because if they did, the uneasy possibility would develop like what uh, orange basketballs and other peculiar <laughs> objects did we <laughs> imprint during the many uh, critical periods of our development. Uh, well, that was hot stuff back in 1964. And uh, what, although even today your classic textbooks in psychology, uh, don't, they, they talk about imprinting and they imply that possibly imprinting might have something to do with the human situation. But now no scientist or no uh, human hive can face the possibilities uh, of imprinting because the whole thing gets pretty silly until uh, our species has arrived at a point where you can do something about imprinting. Because none of us wants to think that we've just robots reacting uh, to something that was accidentally there when we uh, first came on the scene. So uh, the concept that developed at Harvard and then at Millbrook and later uh, seemed to have uh, moved out to other places was the concept of serial imprinting, that for thousands of years uh, the smartest women and men have known that through uh, manipulating your nervous system by getting high in any way that you can, you can suspend the old imprints and have a chance to uh, start a new reality because, as we all know, in sophisticated San Francisco, uh, we all live within the reality bubble that our nervous system projects. 
Now, uh, still today, they, they don't give this concept enough credit, although there are about 40 million Americans who regularly practice the, uh, the art and science of serial reimprinting and aesthetic uh, <laughs> and other experiments, which uh, I need not detail. Now, um, uh, I didn't hear you. What? Spike the punch. <laughs> Spike the punch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, um, I'm still fighting some of my legal cases, and I'm out on parole, and the porters are always asking me, uh, well, what illegal drugs do you take? So um, for a while I said, well, I don't do anything illegal, immoral, fattening, or... <laughs> that would please Ralph Nader. <laughs> and, uh, but um, more recently, uh, I was married uh, December uh, 19th. That's uh, a little over a month ago. My wife Barbara is here tonight, and I want to... Uh, Barbara, where are you? Um, now, I'm not advocating anything. <laughs> But uh, I think fusion is wonderful. <laughs> um, um, I want to um, make a, a few scientific generalizations tonight based upon my survey of uh, the current literature and uh, current science fiction. Because science fiction always creates the science fact of a generation or two later. I'm sure we all know that. Uh, the great honor to any side that goes to the science fiction writers. You know, uh, Jules Verne wrote that story about the trip to the moon. It was over 100 years ago, and he had his uh, rocket the same size as Apollo, left from uh, Florida, went up there about the same amount of time, and landed within 200 miles of where uh, the Apollos were landing in the Pacific Ocean. Now, uh, science fiction writers have a certain power, don't they? Um, well, I want to uh, summarize for you some of the uh, hot ideas in... Um, in science today, which have never been applied to our situation because uh, the adult authorities are in the hive, of course, uh, want to use scientific uh, breakthroughs uh, to, uh, <laughs> to do the normal things, you know, make war and make money. Uh, and, and they're not too happy about individual members of the hive being uh, really up to date and alertly tuned into new scientific developments which might give uh, power uh, to the individual. Now, Of course, uh, if I uh, at times um, poke fun at the uh, adult authorities who run our hive, I'm sure you know that there's not one uh, sense of um, bitterness or anger uh, in me. I mean, it, I mean, after all, we won the Super Bowl, and it would be unsportsmanlike of us <laughs> to <laughs> complain about dirty playing <laughs> by the Nixon group or whatever in the second half. <laughs> Now, what about, uh, in the 60s, uh, uh, we were all concerned with neurology. It was the head trip. We, uh, the, we all knew that it was, since it was our brain that created reality, you had to be pretty careful about, uh, you know, uh, shooting your neurological film, and you had to get the right set and setting and the right personnel. In other words, the shooting, your life became all like a movie. You know, you have to uh, get the right location and, uh, and so forth. Uh, neuro neurology was the real revolution of the 60s. You're never going to read that in your... Uh, in here. <laughs> Hello. 
Yes. I... <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, San Francisco, 20th century, right. <laughs> so I'm going to be uh, summarizing for you uh, tonight... Um, uh, the scientific issue which is going to be hot in the next uh, five or ten years. Using the neurological advances we made in the 60s, we can now uh, uh, begin to understand what evolution is all about. So I'm going to be talking about evolution. And uh, the generalization I'm going to make is that your theory of evolution is the key to your own personal development or your understanding of what's happening around you. And uh, far from being a textbook situation uh, argued about by Darwinians and fruit flies, your theory of evolution, <laughs> your theory of evolution determines really uh, what kind of a life you're going to lead. <clears throat> now, and, and right down the line, I want to tell you, the orthodox uh, genetic biological theory of the United States today is exactly where psychological theory was uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, they are trying to sell us a theory of evolution uh, which is so ridiculous and so ludicrously useful to them and not to us that um, um, it's becoming clearer and clearer that your concept of evolution determines uh, you know, where and how fast and with whom we're going to go. Now, um, I'd like to tell you some animal stories. Uh, the point I'm making is that uh, we are not here as a result of blind chance, uh, statistical accident, uh, copying errors. You, you, I'm sure you know that the classic theories of evolution claim that uh, life began down here when um, sometime in the Precambrian ooze, there were a bunch of uh, ammonium molecules and they were having a party one night and they invited some methane uh, molecules and some hydrogen boys and some oxygen girls dropped by. And the joint was hit by lightning and they began to fuck. <laughs> I mean, can you believe that? Uh, now, they never explain you know, exactly how the self-replicating mechanism comes. Yeah, it's clear that you can produce prebiotic uh, amino acid molecules that way, but there's still no explanation in these orthodox textbooks as to exactly uh, how the sperm egg flirtation uh, began. Um, now, um, the Darwinian theory of natural selection is, uh, is, is being overthrown now. now. We have to give great honor to Charles... Yeah. Light! <laughs> I'm not doing any dishonor to... Oh, by the way, uh, here's what I think we should do tonight. I've got an enormous amount of uh, intelligence information to transmit. Um, on the other hand, uh, we're all active people who don't like to sit for a long time. So I'm going to talk for about a uh, half hour more, then we'll take a break, and I'll come back and talk for another, uh, you know, 40 minutes. Uh, also, I urge you uh, not to be polite. Uh, San Francisco uh, requires rowdy crowds. So th think of it as a rock concert. I mean, we've got some of the greatest rock musicians in the world here. Uh, please move around. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, get it on, or I don't, uh, I'll really be irritated if any one of you sits through more than a boring minute. <laughs> All right. Um. Now, there's one other problem, of course, in dealing with an audience of this sort, which is a very 21st, 22nd century audience. 
there's a tremendous variety in nervous systems because we know as we evolve, we get uh, more complicated, uh, more unique, and our uniqueness intelligence makes us, allows us to make uh, higher liaisons and better link-ups. But there's a tremendous, tremendous variety of nervous systems in this um, uh, hall tonight. In the old days, if you gave a lecture, you were either for communism or against it or for Catholicism or against it. Uh, Middle East are still going on that way. Uh, so, uh, but here, there, I, I see some... Uh, some uh, happy amoeba floating back there, and I see some, some wild, uh, romantic, feudal barbarians galloping around over there, <laughs> and I see a lot of uh, 23rd century people flying around, so. <laughs> see, the problem is this, that uh, to talk, you know, to send signals, we have to scope and scan, and these nervous systems are dialing and tuning, so if, if we get to a point where I seem to be digressing, <laughs> We have two possibilities. One, you can think you're stupid, and we know that's not true. <laughs> the other is that uh, I'm a brain-toasted acid head, and just be patient. <laughs> the third possibility is they're all moving so fast that we're here and back, and if you, know, if you miss me for a second, I'm going to be zapping through in a minute, so don't worry. <laughs> all right. I'm going to tell you some animal stories. I want, the point is that evolution is not accidental. The Dar Darwinians would have it, you believe, would have you believe that uh, not only was it an accidental uh, thunderbolt in the Precambrian mud that started it, but that all evolution and differentiation of form <coughs> has been due to accidents, copying errors, carbon copy smudges, and that if it hadn't been any accidents, we'd all be happy unicellular amoebas sucking and floating. Now, I'm not here to knock sucking and floating, <laughs> but uh, obviously there's more to handling this planet and off uh, than that. So uh, <clears throat> I don't believe that we're here as a um, sequence of eras. I don't think that uh, three and a half billion years could take us from the amoeba to Howard Cosell and Monday Night Football. I mean, no way. It's got to be there's an intelligence behind all this. <laughs> For example, I cite you our friend, the monarch butterfly. Okay, suppose we're all hanging out in a, um, in a Mendocino uh, forest, and there are all these insects running around, crawling, and there are two caterpillars doing the same insect thing, eating and crawling, and so forth. Then suddenly the two caterpillars uh, get cocoons, and what happens? They come out. But they come out different. One is a beautiful phosphorescent, psychedelic, uh, lemon green blue butterfly, and the other one is a monarch. The monarch butterfly then, as you know, starts, uh, if it's the right time, the right generation, the right time to make the move, because not every generation does it. I repeat, not every generation does it. I repeat once more, not every generation does it. <laughs> but some generations of monarchs start flying south. They fly from four to 7,000 miles south to exactly the tree where their psychedelic great-grandmother or father <laughs> were three generations before, the exact same tree. Now, how do you account for that? Uh, the distance would be, in terms of the human body and the mileage, would be, what, going around the world by, on foot, you know, ten times. How do they do that? Um, I'll, um, now, the Darwinian theory would tell you that it's all accident. Uh, some monarch headed for San Francisco and somehow uh, <laughs> the weather pushed it over to Almeida and then, you know, uh, it didn't get eaten because, you know, and because uh, the Darwinian theory says it all. It's a, it, listen, the Darwinian theory is a male macho prim theory. It's 
total sperm aggressive intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those that fight best and fuck most spread the sperm and the, the lady monarchs just say, hey, yeah. <laughs> Hi. It's all plain. Oh, I should say, I started saying before, I give great honor to Charles Darwin. He's a, he belongs in the Genetic Hall of Fame. He had a tough situation to deal with. It was his unhappy task in the 19th century to deal with uh, between two and three thousand years of monotheism. And they had to fight this notion of creation that a male, macho, shepherd, paranoid, FBI-type god <laughs> did it all in seven days and said, it's mine. And uh, <laughs> anyone doesn't do what I want or eats tree, you know, you know. <laughs> particularly, he didn't want you to eat the tree to, fruit of that second tree, which uh, was the uh, fruit of longevity and life extension and mortality, lest uh, we become like... Him. Uh, see, now Darwin had his uh, work cut out for him. So in order to deal with this uh, uh, Judeo-Christian concept, Darwin had to go to the opposite extreme and say, there's no uh, intelligence whatsoever, because intelligence, an intelligent creator, you know, leads right back to that, because, you know, it couldn't. It, it, Darwin couldn't conceive of the fact that if the thing was done by an intelligent design, it had to be a man, right? And the fact that the possibility that it wasn't a man um, was something that um, had to be dealt with. Why did Darwin have to do this? Well, um, because uh, monotheism is over. And uh, he was the hit man. Now, uh, 3,000 3, years before that, monotheism was necessary. You had a bunch of tribes running around, and each tribe had its own little gig. One would uh, carve wood, and the other would uh, carve stone, and one would do you know, that. So you had to have uh, some megalomaniac uh, male. You had to have a megalomaniac male saying, I have the divine power to pull these enormous tribal groups together so that they could build the pyramids, so they could build the great uh, uh, mathematical design institutes of Babylon. You had to have that, uh, because an enormous anthill with millions of humans. They can't be screwing around by God. There's one God that runs it. And in the Geo-Christian situation, of course, it's a hymn. Now, um, that was Darwin's situation. He had to deal with that. So, the Darwinian theory, I mean, it's a locker room joke. <laughs> According to the Darwinian theory, when the male um, um, hurtles between four and five hundred million sperm into the female reproductive tract at each ejaculation. I, I repeat, four hundred to five hundred million sperm. Uh, then ensues, are you ready? Countdown. The greatest race in history. <laughs> Can you imagine five hundred million sperm <laughs> doing Mark Spitz swimming? <laughs> the scenario apparently ends that um, when they get to Miss Egg, she's waiting there, and she said, the first one across the finish line, <laughs> gets, come in, baby. <laughs> now, how playing fields of Eaton can you get? <laughs> uh, I was at a cocktail party once, and uh, a biologist came up to me and said, well, congratulations, Timothy, you were the one that made it. I said, what do you mean made it? Said, well, you were the one that swam the fastest and got to the egg first. I said... Are you crazy? I didn't run. 
I floated with the tide up there watching carefully, and I studied exactly what she liked and didn't like. <laughs> and I saw her laser shoot down all those macho athletes. <laughs> so finally, at the right moment, I showed up with flowers and perfume and whatever <laughs> was needed <laughs> to let her know. And she said, I want you! <laughs> Um, see, evolution is very important. If you read the Scientific American three issues ago, the entire issue was devoted to evolution. And over and over, they went right down the list of all the basic tenets of orthodox evolutionary theory. And seven out of eight were wrong, and seven out of eight were wrong exactly in the way that would keep us from realizing that we can change, we can uh, mutate. Uh, that, uh, for example, um, the old theory... By old, I mean the ones that they're still teaching in your colleges. <laughs> um, says that um, um, new speciation takes tens of millions of years to create a new species. Well, if that's so, let's go back to quaaludes. Huh? <laughs> Why bother? <laughs> well, the facts of the matter are that's not true. In the right time, at the right place, with the right uh, chemicals and... Um, uh, uh, evolution leaps and qu jumps and quantum jumps and quantum leaps and uh, speciation. See, what's coming back in phase, because everything comes around once again, is Lamarckianism. Remember Lamarck said that um, uh, what happened in the lifetime of the individual reflected in the species. Now, in the gross morphological bodily thing, it isn't true that if a carpenter does this a lot, his uh, daughter or her son is going to have <laughs> enormous biceps. It's not acquired characteristics in the neuromuscular mechanical sense. But you've got to believe that she's smart. You've got to believe that she's using every technique of intelligence agents. You've got to believe that maybe we are her intelligence agents out here with our nervous systems picking up information. You've got to aesthetically entertain the possibility that uh, the DNA biological guy wisdom knows exactly what's going on all the time. And a matter of fact, once you look at the um, scientific um, reports, you see buried away little articles which have the implications so staggering uh, that because they prove that uh, uh, DNA is picking up information uh, not only during lifetimes but even from season to season. I cite you, for example, the case of the foxes in France. Because of uh, urbanization and mechanical agriculture, the fox population of France was almost um, obliterated. So some French naturalists found um, a few, uh, they call them dens of foxes, and studied them. And much to their surprise, they found out that the fox mothers were giving birth not to two, but to seven, eight, or nine in the litter. And the ratio of female to male was uh, about three to one in favor of the female. So instead of two, one male, one female, you were getting each fox uh, litter with uh, three, four, or five females. Now that means that in one generation, uh, the foxes looked around the neighborhood. They went down to the old corner uh, disco. They say, hey... What's happening to us? Uh, CNS, Central Nervous System, reports that to RNA, and RNA say, hey, we're in a little trouble up there. So um, the biological genetic dial is turned. Now, you know what happens if they get too many uh, foxes in one uh, space? The dial will be turned down again. Are you enjoying this? Am I being too scientific? Yeah? I got the message. Okay. <laughs> if you want, when I come back or later, I'll talk about the, the 60s and the 70s.
What? All right, well, we'll, all right, I'm going to tell you one more animal story, and then we can draw some implications from that. Uh, how many of you saw that uh, television special on the termites, uh, narrated by Orson Welles? Wow, boy, they, that, um, they couldn't let that out in prime time. It was too hot. Um, uh, the ter- uh, you know, the, the sociobiology, uh, behavioral genetics, the new hot philosophies and sociologies are based to a certain extent on um, analyses of uh, social insects and social animals. Now, the termite hive is the most successful terrestrial uh, social situation. The termite hive has been around for 100 million years. Now, the human species goes back in our form, what, 10,000, 20,000, uh, 100 million years. The dinosaurs came and went, and, you know, glaciers came and went, and the termite hive had worked out the perfect uh, social situation. They have got down terrestrial uh, living. They're the smartest terrestrial creatures, apparently. Uh, the way they do it, they use two techniques which are obvious techniques, like if you're her trying to uh, spread your um, uh, intelligence agents into every ecological niche in every square millimeter of a planet and beyond, um, you certainly would uh, realize that the way to increase the intelligence and therefore the aesthetics and therefore the uh, harmony and the fun of your species would be to have um, what's called temporal and structural casts. Temporal casts means that uh, you go through stages, like metamorphosis. <clears throat> that the, uh, at a certain age, a small ant plays one role, taking care of the babies. At a larger, uh, a little older, it works around the hive. A little older, it goes out on errands. A little older, it gets to do guard duty. A little later, it gets to be rock and roll ant. You know, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> there are also specialized functions, or uh, what are called casts, in, a, um, in an anthill. Now, um, you know, the warrior ants and the worker ants, uh, now, there is a direct, immediate relationship between the egg uh, queen of the hive, who in size would be about twice as big as this room compared to one of us if we were uh, rock and roll ants, termites. Um, the queen simply uh, gets information from everything that's going on around and produces exactly the casts of ants that are needed. For example, if there's a war outside uh, with the red ants, you know, the capitalists or the communist answer, they call them. Um, and we've suffered some uh, losses. Maybe we lost 50,000 of our glorious uh, warrior ants. Uh, the word is passed back to uh, the egg intelligence. How is it passed on? Well, this is another one of the amusing aspects of, um, of biology. You know, they never really think through the implications of what's going on. Uh, most biologists scorn the ants because you know how ants communicate? They don't have the Reader's Digest. They don't have Channel 4. They communicate by spit. <laughs> I don't want to shock anyone here, but I want to tell uh, everyone in this room that every time uh, you put your tongue in the mouth of a loved one or vice versa, you are exchanging more information in one second than all the Library of Congress is in history. <laughs> So, the word is passed back until, uh, chain by chain, until uh, egg wisdom gets the word, we've lost 50,000 warriors. So she simply turns the dial, and for the next few hours, a day or two, what are produced? Warrior ants. For example, if there's a drought and uh, no water out there, hey, she's getting that message. She then uh, turns up the dial and creates a cast of ants who can dig down 10 to 15 feet, which 
but for us being digging down like five miles, to bring up one drop of water which is put above the uh, egg supply and uh, so forth. Now, there's one final thing I'd like to talk, tell you about the termite ants. It sounds rather dull, doesn't it? I mean, year after year going on, millions of years going on in that same ant. Of course, each ant hill is t- designed with uh, more architectural perfection than uh, our Gothic cathedrals. Each ant hill has to be in tune with the ecological situation, the nature of the soil, the amount of the city, and so forth. But it's still kind of dull. So what happens after uh, when the right time comes? When the right time, because blossoming is always a matter of time, blossoming is always a matter of time, when the right time comes, uh, she turns the dial and produces a new species of ants. These species, this new species of ants are about five times bigger than the ordinary ants. And they've got wings. They've got wings that go from here all the way over to there. Glorious silver blue wings. But see the problem. You all know the problem. Everyone in this room knows the problem of the winged creature inside the hive. How are you going to get out? <laughs> so, she's got it all taped out. <laughs> she creates other um, groups of, um, of ants who make runways. And uh, slowly, slowly, almost floating, come the silver ants out, out, out. They begin to fly a little and they circle the enormous uh, hive, which can be the shape of a mushroom, can be the shape of uh, anything that fits the terrain and the ecology. And when they totally cover the uh, hive with these shimmering, uh, quivering, uh, silver-blue wings, at that moment, they all move out. Why? All the way around? Because she wants to make sure that it's a 360-degree circle. The, the female ants move first. They fly certain place, feels good, and the female ant descends, sends out a perfume, beats her wings so the perfume goes out, and in time, (laughs) she's joined by a male ant. The minute they kiss, they drop their wings, they make love, take one look at the sky, and they uh, burrow down into the ground to start a new planet, or a new, whatever you want to call it. Okay, one more um, scientific um, uh, fact, (laughs) and then we can go on to conclusions. Every woman, every woman in this audience, uh, shortly after conception, while still in uh, the utero condition, each woman in this audience was given one million eggs. That was your egg supply, that was to last you through your uh, assignment on this planet. Um, every month after uh, adolescence, one or two of this enormous supply of potential species intelligence is dropped down the fallopian tube. Fallopian tube. Dig that word tube. Tube's in. <laughs> I, was, I was on a television program in Los Angeles with a very, <laughs> a very nervous um, announcer. And I began talking to you. I said, looked right in the camera. I said, do you realize every woman watching this program has one million eggs? And the announcer says, more or less. <laughs> I said, yeah, more or less. Um, <laughs> tube isn't one of those four-letter words that you're not allowed to say in public. So, um, now, if I, I'm a uh, domesticated primitive primate from the late 20th century, moving quickly into the 21st century. 
But if I can figure out a better way to handle that than the Darwinian scientists come up with, I'm sure that the biological intelligence worked it out. I would certainly not let uh, the intersection of sperm and egg, which is going to determine exactly the future of the species, I would not let that be up to chance. Uh, so here are the situation. You have one million eggs in the female, and you have each uh, lovemaking, um, uh, 400 to 500 million sperm. Uh, I don't think that's chance. If there's ever a time in the history of a species when you'd want to bring to bear all the evidence, all the data, all the uh, precise anticipations of what needed out there, I think that um, uh, uh, genetics and uh, obstetrics and gynecology is going to uh, uh, be published very soon. Uh, a lot of data which indicates that the period of ovulation is a period of tremendous selectivity. And uh, uh, based upon the uh, information that your nervous system is giving um, the egg machinery inside the um, body of everyone in this hall tonight, I think decisions are being made. Now, I'm not saying this is definite, but it sure is a lot more fun. It's a lot more hopeful. It's a lot more optimistic. It's a lot more aesthetic. And uh, you, <laughs> you either believe in no nothing whatsoever except chance, or you're going to believe uh, in a, uh, a biological intelligence uh, which uh, knows what she's doing. I think, as I said before, that the, um, the intersection between the one of the 400 million sperm and that egg, which is like exactly at the time, is the um, intersection of um, species um, uh, future creation. What? Ask them right now. Pardon? <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> Um, what happened in the 60s? Okay, I'll, I'll, uh, the 60s was a, um, a genetically designed and programmed pedomorphic revolt against adult authority. Um, another technique used by uh, egg intelligence, I'm going to ask you a question, give me a little warm-up, okay? All right, I dedicate this one to you. <laughs> I hope you like it. <laughs> Uh, geneticists have also found out something interesting about how evolution works. Now remember, they don't really want to know too much about how evolution works because the more they realize how precise and how aesthetic and how uh, wonderful it works, then they can't talk about chance anymore. But one of the obvious techniques that biologists have uh, <coughs> discovered uh, is used to um, uh, create evolution. It's this fact, that um, species only evolve from the juvenile or the larval or the pre-adult form. Uh, the adult form is the uh, specialized form. Hello. Are the space people coming? <laughs> we are the space people and we are going. <laughs> when are they coming? Where, where, where are they coming? Well, uh, we could be them. Are we them? I am. Barbara is. <laughs> okay. Consider us uh, on loan from the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, listen. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll get to that later. I'm sure that 
Most of the people in this room, most people in this room have had that discovery early in life. You looked around at the adults, at the uncles and the aunts, and the grandparents, and the, uh, you watched what was going on in the adult world, and you felt out of place. <laughs> you felt quite alienated. <laughs> now, if you were, if you were lucky, uh, you didn't make this show. You didn't blurt it out. <laughs> they didn't send you off to a mental health clinic. <laughs> but, um, um, if I were going to uh, make any suggestions egg intelligence, and I'm not really, but uh, I, I'm sure she's considered this possibility, that um, at any one time, as our species travels as a huge egg ship through time, generations moving through time, at, at any one period, you'd want to have uh, half of the people being born with future nervous systems and half with past nervous systems. You have to have your roots. Uh, you have to keep the, uh, uh, we don't give anything up. Uh, we're, we're, we still got a paleolith brain. We've still got an amoeba brain. We've still got a reptile brain. But um, I'm sure that um, most of the people who have felt alienated, I think many of the people are put in mental hospitals, uh, are people that simply were born with nervous systems that were, we call futique as opposed to antique. And I think... <laughs> now, um, the, um, the point here, see, is um, uh, if you're going to feel, uh, you know, synced, you've got to be in a place where there are people who share your reality. And if you've got a 21st century nervous system which doesn't get off on four-foot mammalian barnyard politics, uh, then uh, you've got to get your nervous system to a place where it can hook up and create realities with those that share your time. The key to your brain is time. Brains are cranked out by DNA just like models of Porsches, uh, 79, uh, 52, and so forth. And it's all necessary. There's no, there's no um, good guy, bad guy scenario here. Uh, some are, are, I'm a robot. I, I admit it. I, I have no choice. Uh, from the first time that I looked around and I saw what was going on, uh, I just felt that I had to move the whole thing up to my time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, the trick of doing this is, is, is simply geographic. I've got a new book coming out called uh, Intelligence Agents, and the main point of the book is um, neurogeography, that where you are determines which uh, circuits of your brain are being used. See, if you're in Belfast, Ireland, uh, you've got a 15th century or 16th century brain, because all you're concerned about is Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics. In general, the farther east you go, the more, um, uh, you know, do you see what's happening in Iran? I mean, how could that happen in Iran? Iran had all the oil, it had all the computers, it had all the electronics, it had the bringing in discos. I mean, what do they want to complain about there? They want to go back to the, uh, to the uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th century. Pakistan, paper day, said uh, the guys running Pakistan are going to bring back the old Islamic code. They're going to cut off the hand of a thief. Uh, women go back in veils. There's not going to be any more education, which means Pakistan is going to give up, uh, you know, trying to become a modern country. Now, what happens? What's going to happen in Iran? What's going to happen in Pakistan? And this Islamic movement is going all through the uh, uh, East, Middle East. What's going to happen is... Uh, those Pakistanis who are, have to be educated, who have to learn how to uh, do physics or have to learn how to play rock and roll, are going to move as far west as their nervous systems will uh, gear them to. So to be in the right place means to be in the right time. It's so simple. To be in the right place, you're in the right time. 
attune the place you are to the vibrations of your uh, the, the brain circuits that you want to activate at the time. Now, there are times when you want to be an amoeba. There are times when you want to, you know, gallop around uh, uh, like an athlete or like a... You know, times you want to charge out in the woods and become a mammal. Great. But um, uh, I didn't answer your question because I, I dedicated that one to you. All right. Now, let me, let me answer his question. I just said, yeah, future people are here. Are you the space people? You are. Well, lots of them. I don't know if you are, but lots of us here. There you go. How about a show of hands? How many space people here? Yeah. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> now let, let me answer his question. The way evolution works. <laughs> the way evolution works is this. Evolution never tries to change grown-ups. When you go home tonight, look in the dictionary for the word adult. You'll find the word adult is the past participle of the verb to grow. <laughs> it says, adult, that form of a species which uh, is no longer metamorphizing and has reached its final stage. <laughs> Adult means uh, over-specialized. So um, DNA knows better than to try to screw around with that. Now, pedomorphosis, or neoteny, is the technique used by DNA that at a certain moment, uh, and it's all due to, to success, which gives you pollution and overpopulation. Now, I know that uh, ecological uh, consciousness has made us all aware of the pollution. Now, the way to do away with the pollution, of course, is not to uh, stop all technology. The way to, uh, first of all, you have to understand that pollution is a signal that triggers off the next movement in our nervous systems. Um, so when I say the pollution is a valuable sign of pain, it's a signal uh, to activate our nerves. Let me give you an example. I cite you the example of a, of a beehive, because we, we're so close to pollution as humans, you know, it's, we don't want to hurt Ralph Nader's feelings or anything. Uh, so let's talk about a beehive. We'll call that Beehive America. We'll say this American beehive uh, came into this incredible clover patch. And uh, they were fast moving far out, individual bees anyway. Uh, they all escaped from the old hives because they had some dissident <laughs> Quaker shaker, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> restlessness. Anyway, these American bees get this clover patch and it's fabulous. It's the best beehive that's ever been. They went out there and they got the, uh, uh, the clover. They had this fantastic dance. Communication was terrific. They come back to the hive and make honey. More and more honey. More honey, the more you make love. The more you make love, the more bees. More you... The hive got to be the most successful, fast-growing hive in history with the best communication system. However, some of the older bees finally looked around and said, what's happening to this hive? There's too much noise of all those wings, too many bodies. There's a lot of bee shit on the floor. I mean... <laughs> this hive, I mean, we got to cut this out. I don't want as much honey. Don't make love so much. Let's limit our growth. Come on. <laughs> no, no, that's not what happens. Um, what happened to you while you were in jail? <laughs> I just went in jail when you said that, and now I'm out. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Oh, I talked about the beehive, how pollution is a sign to, uh, to uh, it's, it's a sign to change and move. Now, what happens in evolution and pedomorphosis and your question about uh, 
yeah, the 60s, uh, works like this. The dinosaurs have the turf deal down. Uh, the dinosaurs uh, figured out that the bigger you are, the more armor plating. Listen, you become like a, you control that turf, you know, like a Sicilian mafia controls it or like the uh, Irish mafia controls it. No one's going to fuck with a kid of a dinosaur. So, there are more and more dinosaurs, and they're moving out, and they're eating all the yeah, great butt. Uh, with size and uh, with armor plating goes the, you give away, mobility. Mobility is nobility. The solution to almost every problem is move, either inward or outward. And the dinosaurs couldn't move. So, but listen, it got to be a terrible situation. You talk about uh, pollution, you talk about Times Square, you talk about the freeways of San Francisco. There were so many dinosaurs out there in the swamp sinking in, and the young dinosaurs took one look. <laughs> there goes J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> there goes uh, L.B. Johnson. There goes Mamie Eisenhower. We aren't going to grow up. And, and from the fetal or juvenile uh, dinosaurs developed, as you probably know, wing creatures, the avian creatures who fly far and fast. So, um, the 1960s answer question was, I could give you dozens of examples of how evolution works from the larvals and the juveniles. Um, I'll tell you one more thing about human, uh, about a human uh, pedomorphosis. As you know, the key characteristic of the human species is we have, we have not matured. We're embryonic. We, lit, you know, we, don't have, we, we haven't over-specialized yet. In Scientific America, about three years ago, there were these... Uh, four uh, x-ray photos of the skull of an embryonic chimp and of a, a human fetus, almost the same. Uh, an adult chimp with an enormous big jaw, adult human being, almost like the fetal human being and the fetal chimp. The implications are obvious. We didn't grow from the apes. We refused to become apes. <laughs> and we... <c> <laughs> Um, now, what happened, in the what happened in the 1960s was this. Um, the time had come <laughs> to uh, avoid terminal adulthood. A generation of young people, and there, I, I could spend hours giving you the ecological, historical, and genetic, biological, neurological things that happened to make that come, the first baby boom generation after Hiroshima and so forth, but that generation in the 60s, millions and millions of young people simply refused to buy the adult image, the adult model. And you had those incredible uh, musical prophets and minstrels. And see, the interesting thing about the 60s was we were unified in the 60s because we all were refusing uh, to identify with that adult authority. So there was that, yeah, Dylan was saying... Uh, <laughs> she talks about man and God and law. She's 68, but she says she's 54. Well, I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. And um, um, <laughs> the Beatles rang those songs about she's leaving home. What did we do wrong? Can't get no satisfaction. Uh, go right down the line. The great San Francisco uh, sound groups. Um, uh, the signal was being sent out. Um, uh, 
We simply aren't going to over-specialize in the careerist 1950s. Don't worry, the 1970s are not like the 50s. The 1970s are highly individual and highly, a very fast-moving uh, decade, but not visibly and not uh, in the sense of demonstrations. Uh, <laughs> one of the messages that I have right now is, uh, the message is this. I, I don't advocate anything, but I urge you to think it over. I urge you... <laughs> I urge you at all costs to avoid terminal adulthood. <laughs> What's going to happen? Uh, I think we're getting better. I'm better now than I was 10 years ago. I'm, I'm learning. I'm changing. I'm growing. You are too. <laughs> what time is it? How long have I been talking? You want to take a break now or in 10 minutes? Ten, Claire Frost has just arrived. Hey, dear. All right, we'll talk for 10 more minutes. All right. Yeah, well, if anyone is restless, get up, move around. Listen, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got a head full of ideas that are driving me insane, so. <laughs> uh, I don't think I have to talk about um, um, neurogeography. Um, the, the principle is very simple. Uh, when you go back east, it literally is back east, you're going down in time and back in evolution. When you get, when, <laughs> I know, you're not back there. <laughs> Uh, um, now, um, I've, spent, uh, I've spent about a third, almost a half my adult life in the old world, uh, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes on the run. And um, uh, it's not uh, chauvinism to say that uh, each kilometer that you move east, uh, there's more reliance on tradition, there's more reliance on uh, authoritarian uh, setups, uh, there's less confidence in individuality, uh, there are more blocks to, uh, to enthusiasm and to change. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, matter of fact, um, if you really understand the principles of neurogeography, if you really understand the principles of neurogeography, you can time travel. You know, like, you can go to Uganda. <laughs> like, I think most smart people in Uganda have left. <laughs> I, once, I once said, is there one intelligent person left in Uganda? And a guy said, yeah, one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> now, um, Throughout evolutionary history, uh, when you talk about uh, geography, it's always a hot subject. You know, the Neapolitans against the, uh, uh, the Romans and the uh, Carthaginians. There's always been this incredible tension. There's an incredible uh, intense love affair going on now between uh, California and New York and the East Coast because uh, that's the past capital and this is the forward. And, always that. Uh, and, of course, it has to do with style. It has to do with beauty. It has to do with individual. Uh, so, therefore, it's very sexual and it's very, uh, you know, 
know, and so forth. It's a, it's, it's, it's a place to be in this electricity between New York and, uh, and San Francisco and L.A. And uh, there's no chauvinism here. Go exactly to the place where you want your nervous system get on and then move uh, to the uh, time niche that... Um, See, the point is, you know, when you look at a map, it's got those hours, those uh, meridians. Those aren't hours, those are centuries. (laughs) You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. When this talk makes it to the Internet Archive, you may want to listen to the last 20 minutes or so of the recording. And uh, what you'll find is that this lecture quickly disintegrated into total chaos. Uh, There were people in the audience shouting questions, and Tim would start to answer one, but then someone would interrupt and say something funny that got him laughing so hard he couldn't talk. And uh, (laughs) it was amusing, but uh, there really weren't a dozen coherent words left in the tape, and uh, so I took the liberty of not playing it here. But uh, before long, you'll have access to all of this material at the Internet Archive. And a a huge thank you to all of you good folks over at the Internet Archive who are uh, going out of your way to get some of the Leary Archive material online. I'm sure that the psychedelic community the world over sends you light and love for helping to preserve this wonderful little piece of our history. So, uh, what do you think about uh, Tim Leary's suggestion that perhaps half of our species has been born with a future nervous system? For me, that was a uh, very synchronistic remark because of the conversation I had with Bruce Damer a week ago. I hope to podcast parts of that conversation, and uh, in particular the part where Bruce was talking about what is happening to the nervous systems of people who spend a lot of time online or gaming. Now that I have this uh, suggestion of Dr. Leary's in mind, the idea that uh, people are being born with 22nd century nervous systems is going to give me a whole new way of thinking about some of the things that uh, Bruce was talking about. Which is just my very long-winded way of saying that, uh, for me at least, I found some of these ideas of Timothy Leary to be very much relevant today. My favorite thought, of course, was uh, when he said, The message is this. I don't advocate anything, but I urge you to think it over. I urge you at all costs to avoid terminal adulthood. (laughs) And I can uh, think of no better advice, whether you're uh, 15 or 95, avoid adulthood at all costs. Uh, It's a terminal disease, I'm told. Now, I want to mention uh, a little personal connection that has come about because of these podcasts, and that is uh, I heard from my friend Ken, who I shared some wonderful days with at one of the Palenque Ethnobotany Seminars. Here's a part of what he had to say. Also, just a little plug you can mention to your listeners about the possible benefits of perusing your Amazon store. I recently got a hankering for some reading material and was checking out your Amazon store, and I noticed that Rick Strassman has a new book that was just released, which I bought, and uh, I also came across a book I've heard you recommend highly on several occasions, that being Graham Hancock's Supernatural. Now, I really didn't pay too much attention to the condition of the copy I bought, but it turns out that I received a brand new 710-page hardcover edition complete with dust jacket and full-color plates for a paltry five bucks. I'm not sure why I got such a bargain, as the price is now listed at 1977 or so. Still a great deal for a lot of book. 
I really lucked out, but another great reason that I like your Amazon store is that it helps, even in a little way, to keep the excellent podcast coming. Well, thanks for the plug, Ken, and like you say, uh, every little bit helps. Uh, we don't make a lot of money from the Amazon store, but uh, like you say, it all goes into the pot and uh, keeps the bandwidth and disk space paid for, so uh, thanks a lot. Ken goes on to say, Lorenzo, I've also got to say that one of the things I really like hearing on your podcast is when you take the time to address the communications from younger, more isolated, from the psychedelic community, people. I must say that I'm retrospectively envious of the world these young people are coming of age in. Of course, it will also chew them up and spit them out much more quickly than when I was a teen. It does seem that with all of the great informational resources available like Arrowhead and Entheogen.com, your voice and perspective offers the personal human touch of wise, experience-based advice. Well, thank you for saying that, Ken, and uh, thank you also for sending along those pictures from our days in Palenque. Believe it or not, I never got any pictures of my own while I was there, and uh, so it's really great to revisit some of those memories. Another message that uh, came in a while back was from Andy H., who said, My name is Andy, and I'm a college student and studying philosophy and sociology. I took this past semester off to go to Peru for about two and a half months after having the encouragement of listening to the vast majority of your generous library of downloadable podcasts. Towards the end of my trip, I had the privilege of making contact with Alan Shoemaker in Iquitos. There, he generously granted me access to just about any resource he had that I deemed necessary for my own personal journey. Anyways, after a relatively short stay there, as I was gathering my things from Alan's house, I told him about your website and podcast as something that had been inspirational to myself and apparently many others around the globe. This caught his attention very much, and he asked me if he could give me a DVD of the second annual shamanism conference that he'd held a couple years ago, and a flyer of information for his upcoming conference in July, and to send it along to you for podcasting if you'd be interested. Well, yes, that would be great, Andy, and uh, another resource for anyone interested in Alan's annual shamanism conference, you might want to check out some of KMO's podcasts from the Sea Realm, where he has also played some of the material from Alan's conferences. In fact, uh, if you're thinking about going to the shamanism conference this year, you might want to think about registering through KMO's site. That way he'll get a small commission and you'll have a friend in Peru to help you get into the flow of things. And I'll try to remember to put up links to uh, both KMO's site and to Alan's site uh, that discusses the shamanism conferences. And uh, thank you, Andy, for the reminder about this uh, conference coming up this July. I think it would be really worthwhile for anybody that can get down there. Well, I guess that's about it for today. Uh, and as always, I want to close by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.